Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word, for your gospel, for your grace, for your kindness and your love and your patience and your long-suffering, enduring our sin for years. We have no other response, Lord, but to be thankful to you for the ways in which you have shown your goodness to us. And even if we didn't recognize it, you're still worthy of all the praise and all the glory. And because you've made us aware of it, how much more should we praise and glorify you? So we are dependent on you now as we open up your word and dive into your truth and try to understand what you have to teach us this morning. And as we do that, We ask that your spirit would lead, guide, teach, open hearts, open minds, change attitudes, change perspectives, develop our good doctrine, and also make good doctrine our good practice of obedience to you. We want to honor you with our lives. We struggle to do so. It's a hard life following you, but it is a joyful one. So help us to navigate this life in a way that brings you the most honor and glory. And I pray that this morning would just be another piece and another element of how you are building us up into Christ-likeness. So we need you for that and ask for you to take over here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So Paul has been, up to this point, and just in the last... Uh, really since the beginning of chapter 4, has been building an argument for the necessity of focusing our life on godliness. And it isn't until verses 7 through 8 that he says it plainly, which we'll get to today. He has already been communicating that our interactions with this world are meant to reveal something greater than this world. And we saw that clearly back in verse 4. And if you're, you know, if you, a really good, like, understanding of this sermon would be if you weren't here, I think it was not last Sunday, but the Sunday before, I think the 23rd of July, where we covered verse 4. And we, in verse 4 says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And what we see there is that the way that we interact with things in the world can determine whether they end up being a good or a bad thing. They themselves are not inherently good or bad, but we can make them one or the other based on how we interact with them. So we see that, and this we talked about marriage and food and what marriage and food, a couple weeks ago in verse 4, what those things are meant to portray and convey to the world and in the world. Uh, And now Paul is taking that principle that he's been kind of teaching and preparing us for, and he really digs into it and is a little more clear about it in verses 7 through 8. And what that truth does is it helps us navigate all our pleasures and enjoyments in this life in a way that manifests something greater than that thing itself, which is our eternal hope in Christ. That is ultimately what Paul will clarify in today's text. So the principle that is being taught here is about how the Christian should value the things of God over the things of this world 
while we continue to interact with this world, right? So that's, that's kind of the, the running principle of this text that we've kind of seen for the last couple of weeks is how the Christian should value the things of God over the things of this world and what that means to the way we interact with the things of this world. But that's rather vague because as we have all experienced in life, there are things that are inherently good that are not, neither inherently good or inherently bad, but can become a means to sin or a means to godliness, depending on how we interact with it. And so what determines what it becomes, the determining factor, is the condition of our hearts, which is transformed by our knowledge of the word. Now there are other activities and things in this life that are clarified for us in scripture as sin. And such things we are commanded to avoid. Say, for example, I'll use an extreme version, murder. Okay? So we're saying that there are things in this world that are neither inherently good or inherently bad. And the way we interact with them will determine whether they're good or bad. Well, there are some things that are just inherently bad. And if you do them, the condition of your heart has already been revealed. If you murder, Jesus tells us murder comes from anger and hatred. So the condition of your heart is angry and hating and so to murder, you can't say, well, I'll interact with murder in a, in a godly way. That's, you can't. If you do it, it's blatant sin. So there are things in Scripture that are blatantly sin, and by doing them, Scripture teaches us how, that, uh, tells us what the condition of our heart already is. But then there are other things in life, like we saw back in verses four, uh, 3, 4, and 5, uh, like marriage um, or, or food, things that God made that are good, and the way we interact with them will determine whether it's done in sin or done in righteousness. So we can turn those things good or we can turn them bad based on how we interact with them. So the condition of the heart is irrelevant if you engage in what Scripture calls sin. Because, not that it's irrelevant, but it's obvious because the heart is already producing the sin. But for many things in life, they are neither sinful or holy by nature, but can become one or the other depending on how we interact with them. One such example that Paul gave us back in verse 3 was food. And now he's going to give us another physical example in verses 7 and 8. What Paul wants to do is he wants us as Christians, what God wants us to do, is he wants us as Christians to navigate this world in a way that honors God by our hearts engaging with this world, with our minds set on God's, this is important, with our minds set on God's eternal promise of life in Christ. That's ultimately what Paul's going to get to. If our mind and our hearts are set on the eternal hope and the eternal promise, so we have hope in our eternal life because it's been promised to us, and with the gift of faith, we believe the promise and trust in the hope. And the certainty of that hope for us, remember, biblical hope isn't a wish. Like, right, I hope the Packers win more than seven games this year. Don't know if they actually will. I'd be happy if they won two. <laughs> right? But I hope. That's a wish. Okay? Biblically, though, hope is a certainty because the only hope Scripture talks about is the promise that God made that those who believe in Christ would be eternally secure and, and pleased in the presence of God. That is a promise, and when God makes a promise, he fulfills it. So he gives us faith, and faith is this assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11.1. So with faith, we can be sure of the hope that we have in Christ. 
And so it's not a wish, it's a guarantee. And I know it's a guarantee because God promised it. And I know God's going to fulfill his promise because I have faith, and faith assures me that he will do what he says. And if I have any questions, Scripture affirms it and clarifies it and reiterates over and over again the faithfulness of God through examples and declarations. And so we can have total confidence that the whole point of the Christian life and the way that a Christian interacts with the world, with a world that is neither necessarily inherently good or inherently bad, these chairs that you're sitting on are not inherently good and they're not inherently bad, they're neutral in a sense. How we use them will determine whether it's in sin or in godliness. And, and all the things that we do in this life, whether we're sitting in that chair or eating food or doing anything else, and we'll get to some examples later, what we're being told here is the way in which we should interact with those things is with our mind set on the eternal hope of Christ. And if our mind is set in the eternal hope of Christ, then our actions and our attitudes and our disposition and our interactions with the world will be filtered through that hope and we can then do what Paul calls godliness. So we get to verse seven. Paul writes, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now there's value in this statement alone as a command that we just avoid absurd, trivial, useless conversations and topics of discussion. You know, we could just look at this and just make a blanket statement. Hey, don't get involved in irreverent silly myths. Okay, good, moving on. I'll avoid those things. But there's more to it than that. And there's an explanation and there's a reason. There's a fundamental principle that underlies this teaching and we get into that, and because of that, we need to, because there is an underlying truth, we need to understand this verse contextually. So, contextually, Paul is setting us up to reveal a more fundamental truth about what we value and what we consider worthy of our time on this earth. Paul's about to give us the same principle in the next verse, but he'll frame that around our physical bodies and how we use them. But here in verse 7, he's, at the beginning of verse 7, he's framing it around how we speak and in what type of ideas and conversations we engage in. So all the basis of human interaction is covered. Our thoughts, our speech, our conversations, our, the way we use our physical bodies, all the, the aspects of the human experience and our way that we use our, human, our humanity to interact with the world around us are covered in these verses. So Paul teaches... A little more about the inane and mindless value of entertaining these kinds of irreverent silly myths and conversations and ideas in 2 Peter 1.16, where he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, so... Peter reveals that the gospel itself is not based on myths, right? But on truth. And since the gospel is to be the core of our personhood and the motivation of all that we do, it would be senseless and fatuous to engage in the meaninglessness of such ideas when we have, when what we have to offer is the truth and ultimately gives all value and meaning to everything. So we have something better 
to use and to engage with and to process and to use as a filter for the things that we engage with in the world. So to go to irreverent and silly myths, to get involved in controversies and inane discussions and things like that is a waste of your time. And Peter's argument is, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter's saying, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why didn't we follow cleverly devised myths? Because we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. Peter is referring to the transfiguration of Jesus, where he sees Jesus transform on the mountain into his glory. Like that, that is our hope. That's what we're looking forward to, spending eternity with the gift itself, Jesus Christ, magnified in his glory. That's our hope. Our hope isn't an eternity of no sadness. Our hope isn't, can't wait to see grandma on the other side. Our hope isn't, I hope my dog's there. Our hope isn't anything. Our hope isn't even, man, I bet heaven has, and and the new earth has like no rain Or, you know, no arguments, no human frustrations, and all those things might be true. And all those things might be benefits and blessings of eternal life. But Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. He is heaven. He is the gift. He is the reward. Jesus is the point. And what what Peter is saying is, if Jesus is the point, then, later, in eternity... And he's the gift. And when you get there, he's all you're going to care about. Then why isn't that the way it is for Christians in this life? Like, that's Peter's argument. It should be that way. And what Peter's saying is, I saw his glory. And when I saw his glory, I walked away from that moment and thought, how could I possibly talk about anything else? How can I do anything else? How could I preach anything else, teach anything else, share anything else, pray about anything else, converse about anything else? I saw Christ and his glory was magnificent. And that's what he's telling us. I I was an eyewitness of his majesty. Why would I bring silly myths and irrelevant babble to you? Why would I bring meaningless conversations and try to trick you into believing the truth? I saw the truth. It itself is power and glory. I don't need to be clever. I don't need to be divisive. I don't need to be deceptive. I don't need to be, use trickery or anything else to get you to believe in Christ because I've seen the power and I've seen the glory and it is enough. Believe. And, and, and so now, with that kind of mindset, with the Peter's kind of mindset, we should live life as if We've also seen his glory like Peter did because our faith, remember I said faith is the, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith is the gift of God put in me that affirms, that, that enables me to firmly, without doubt, believe in my eternal hope in Christ. That faith is so sure, so strong, so faithful, and so immovable and so powerful because it's God's and he put it in us that I can live my Christian life as if I was Peter and I saw his glory. That's how sure my faith is. That should be the Christian experience. Peter should not be, the moment Peter walks off that mountain after seeing the glory of the transfigured Christ, Peter should not be more sure of his faith than you are today. That's how powerful and good 
God's gift of faith to you is. It enables you to trust in that hope. And if that is true, and that faith is that sure, and our confidence in that hope is that certain, then why would we engage in irreverent, silly myths when it's the opposite of what we're called to do, which is to exude and display and proclaim the gospel of Christ? I mean, look at Peter's reaction to the transfiguration. What does he spend the rest of his life doing? Preaching the gospel endlessly. And he dies for it. Once we entertain the foolishness of irreverent, silly myths, we are automatically moving away from the very thing that defines who we are, which is Christ. Instead, what should come out of our mouths is the word of God. I mean, that Peter, again, as an example, what did he spend the rest of his life doing? Preaching the word of God. It was so important to him that when people said, hey, Peter, we need you to do this other good thing. We need you to do this other good thing. We have people who have a need here in Acts 6, and he says, uh, we don't actually, that, that's a good thing for someone else to do. I need to preach the word. So what should come out of our mouths is the word of God. And we know this because 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for what? Training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That, word, that phrase, training in righteousness, Paul's about to tell us the same thing at the end of verse 7. He'll call it training in godliness, but it's the same concept. And so if Paul tells us at the end of verse 7 to train in godliness, what does Paul tell us in 2 Timothy 3.16 is the way we get trained in godliness? The word of God. So the word of God is the trainer of your righteousness. Now, knowing what we ought not to do, which is be irreverent, Paul offers a solution for what we are to do in verse 7. And he says, rather, rather than involve yourself in irreverent, silly myths, he says, rather train yourself for godliness. And training ourselves in godliness provides two benefits in this context. First, it keeps us from unknowingly training ourselves in irreverent, silly myths, or really, any bad habit because there is not time for meaningless talk when we are consistently training ourselves for meaningful interactions by being constantly engaged in the word. If you're in the word all the time, if you're in the word often, it's very difficult to go from the word and then turn around and, and jump into controversies and gossip and slander and libel or or, or you know, bad-mouthing people and talking about them and, 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 and discussing, you know, uh, uh, conspiracies in the world that are going on or, or having conversations that are irreverent to God or silly myths, as Paul says. And the second benefit of training ourselves in godliness is by training ourselves in godliness, we are constantly working out the kinks in our spiritual armor. There are gaps in our spiritual armor called sin, which the enemy intends to expose. And when we train ourselves for godliness, we sure up those exposed areas with the gospel and the truth of God's word, keeping us from unknowingly developing sinful habits of interacting with this world 
in meaningless and ungodly discussions. So the principle that is being taught here, which I said earlier, is about how the Christian should value the things of God over the things of this world. How the Christian should value the things of God over the things of this world. And the difficult thing is that there's many things in this world that essentially, I'm going to be kind of general here, fit in three categories. Good things, bad things, and things that are neither. Things that could be either depending on how we use them. Right? And so, good things, interact with them in a godly way. Bad things, avoid them. Things that are neither good or bad inherently, use them for good. Now, we all know that. I don't think that that's like a novel idea or news to you. I think every Christian understands that concept for the most part. And we would all agree with such a sentiment. But the reality is that the enemy manipulates us and can often be very successful in his manipulation because of our sinful nature to entertain things that we should avoid completely. Satan is never, so I'm just speaking to myself personally, Satan is never going to attack me personally by trying to get me to waste my time and energy worrying about politics because I don't care about politics. I just don't. You know, I listen to other preachers preach and they'll have politics intertwined in their sermon. I, would, I don't mind weaving some political things here and there as long as it's, you know, gospel-centered, but like, it's just not an interest of mine. I, I just kind of look at the world and I go, yeah, well, it's kind of going to fall apart anyways, so I should be expecting all this crazy weird news and weird things that are happening in the world and I hear about it in the news and it's all, oh, did you hear about this guy said that? And oh, they, they, they uh, you know, are going to sue this guy or this guy's going to jail and this politician say, I don't care. I just don't care. Because I'm like, yeah, the world's going to fall apart and then Jesus is going to come back. So, you know, the worse it gets, I mean, I don't like it being worse, but I'm kind of like, yeah, all right. That means we're getting closer to Jesus returning. I don't like the evil, but I get it. So my point is, Satan's not going to get me wrapped up in that. It's just, I'm not going to be tempted by that. But I do love sports. (laughs) So it wouldn't be surprising if somehow the enemy used sports for me to slowly draw me into sin. And he would do it in such a manipulative way, I don't even see it happening. Just pushing me and, you know, kind of nudging me in certain directions and manipulating my sinful nature, knowing what I love and hate and how I sin and how that works. And, and, and you know, not to say that Satan is greater than he who is in us. That's what John tells us. But, but still, he's, he's trying to destroy you. Satan is a prowling lion seeking for somebody to devour. Not nibble on, Devour. Ever, I assume most of you have seen video of like a lion prowling in like the desert and jumping on a gazelle and ripping its neck open and eating its flesh while it's still alive. That is insanely vicious. That's the comparison that God gives us for the enemy. That's what he's trying to do to you. And how does he do it? He crawls through the grass, unseen, quietly, drawing closer and closer to you, and scripture tells us, flee, flee from him, flee from him, flee from him, resist him, and he will flee from you. But he is trying to manipulate, and he's trying to, he's going to use the things in your life that you love, he knows what you love, he knows what things you're closer to sin with, 
And, and he's going to use that to manipulate you and, and create in you, try to create in you little tiny sinful habits here and there. And as you develop sinful habits, you start to get in a pattern of sinfulness that becomes very difficult to break out of later. So that's what, the, that's what we're facing. And the solution is, well, then train yourself in godliness. And what 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us is training ourselves in righteousness or training ourselves in godliness is to be in the word of God because it is profitable for our teaching and reproof and correction and it makes us competent and equipped for every good work and also helps us to recognize and reject and resist sin and evil. So what does irreverent really mean? Reverent essentially conveys this idea of anything that doesn't give reverence to God, right? It doesn't show respect or reverence to God. So in verse 8, Paul gives us an example of this principle of being reverent to God with the things that we interact with in the world. He gives us an example of this principle that we must value the things of God over the things of this world, even good things, so that the things of this world that we interact with become good things. And he says in verse 8, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So this reveals to us that what is irreverent and silly is ultimately on a spectrum, okay? So think of a spectrum, you know, like a half circle. And a spectrum has two ends and lots of points in between. So I'll get to that in a second. Paul is teaching us that physically training your body, right? He says bodily training is of some value. Physically training your body has value in this life on this earth. There is value to it. So he's not calling it a bad thing. You'll get in shape, you'll lose weight, you feel better about yourself physically mentally you'll be healthier physically speaking biologically you'll be healthier and certainly you could make an argument that exercise and physically training your body could have a, a spiritual benefit in some sense or in some shape of the way but Paul is really just drawing the contrast between the physical world that we engage with and the spiritual world in which we actually are positioned in Christ so Paul is telling us that physical training only benefits you in this life. But training in godliness, that benefits you in this life also and in the life to come. Eternally, it benefits you, making training in godliness better than training your body. Yet he does not tell us not to work out. He doesn't tell us not to eat healthy. He doesn't tell us not to take care of our bodies. He doesn't tell us not to worry about those things. He doesn't denigrate physical training as he says, it has some value. He just compares something good in this world to something better, godliness. Now, the wrong application of this text would be to say that working out is meaningless and worthless and we should only focus on the things of God instead. And there are people who take it that far. There are Christians who are like, God is so important that nothing else in this world matters. Nothing physical matters. Training your body is, it does, isn't important. Going to the movies isn't important. Going to dinner isn't important. Food's not important. Marriage isn't important. God is the only thing. It's like you're, you have the right, like the right heart for God. It's just not 
framed correctly because God has created good things for us to use in a way that magnifies his glory. So we shouldn't resist or avoid certain things. We should resist and avoid sinful things. The rest of it, we're free to interact with in our Christian liberty and using our biblical convictions to interact with them in particular ways. I could work out for an hour every day and no one here would say, Mark, that's not a good use of your time. But if I went to the gym for 10 hours a day, every day, you'd be like, when are you writing your sermons? Like, <laughs> are you discipling anybody? Are you doing counseling? Are you praying with people? You're at the gym for 10 hours a day. What you, that's a waste of your time. So I could take the same activity and use it for glory or use it for sin. Or I could feel a conviction or understand a conviction that God is telling me, Mark, I want you to honor me with your physical body and get it into better shape. Not because the body matters, but because the body represents what I purchased. And I want it to look glorious. So take time and effort to turn your body into something that brings you satisfaction in Christ. But be careful because the body can become an idol. And then you take that and you start going to the gym and you're like, oh, look at my body. It's so amazing. You're taking pictures with your shirt off and sending them to people or whatever. I don't know. It's sin. And then you use it as an idol and it becomes sin. So you can see how something that can be good or bad is all determined on how we use it, the condition of our heart and mind as we interact with it. So if you want to work out, go ahead. That can be valuable. But the principle we are learning is that we value the things of God above all other things. And if we do, then what we know about God and what we know about ourselves and what we know about the world from Scripture will inform how we interact with the things that have potential for irreverence to God. Paul says in verse 9, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The saying that he's referring to is what he just told us in 7 and 8 or really in verse 8, which conveys the importance of believers making growth in godliness a priority. Training yourself in godliness is the priority. And that's what Paul is saying. That's worth noting. That's worth saying that this saying is trustworthy. That training yourself in godliness is a trustworthy thing to say. Training yourself in godliness, it deserves full acceptance. So he's telling the church, believe it. Say it. Repeat it. It's a saying that the church should be repeating and using. Train yourselves in godliness. Train yourselves in godliness. So Paul is affirming his teaching by saying that fully accepting this trustworthy phrase is more valuable than any other aspect of the human experience that we can interact with. There is nothing about this world that offers us an eternal promise. Even good things that we are supposed to love and enjoy. Like, for example, family. You love your family. It's a gift from God. Scripture literally tells us your children are a blessing and a reward from the Lord. That the man whose quiver is full, meaning he has lots of children, is blessed. Like, Children are a good thing. A wife is a good thing. A husband is a good thing. A family is a good thing. And it can become your idol and your God. So it's less about the things themselves 
And it's more about the condition of our heart and the sediment of our mind as we move into these things. Like the, the, the position of our attitude and our thoughts and our doctrine and how our doctrine informs our actions and our attitudes and our feelings and our interactions with the world. All of that shapes how you love your family. If you, you could say, I love my family so much that every Sunday morning we sit down and we play a game together instead of going to church. That's how much I love my family. I'd say, that's sin. That's not loving your family. That's actually hating your family because they need Jesus more than they need you. And they need Jesus more than they need each other. And if they get Jesus, they will actually love each other much better. Right? And I think we all understand that and agree with that. So you can see how how simple it is to take something that's good and then frame it in an honorable way and yet it's wicked. And so it's vital that we understand the word of God as a means to train us into godliness and righteousness. Because if you don't know the word of God, that man who says he doesn't take his family to church but he does it out of love that man, by reading the word of God, would read Hebrews 10, 24, and 25 and realize, I cannot neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. I don't want that habit. Scripture's telling me I have to meet with the body of Christ and grow with them. That's important. How can I, Hebrews 10, 24, stir one another up to love and good works if I'm not meeting with those who need to be stirred? And so from the word of God... Doctrine is built, minds are informed, and with an informed, doctrinally sound mind about what God expects and demands of us, we can then walk in that doctrine and practice those things in a way that honors God. Now, some of the things I've mentioned, they're kind of, you know, obvious, right? Like a guy not taking his family to church, like that's not better than a guy who takes his family to church. We all know that, that's pretty obvious. But there's a lot of things in life that are really gray area, difficult to navigate, not sure what the, what the scripture doesn't address this issue. Is it okay to drink Diet Coke? Like, is it sin to drink Diet Coke? I think most people would say, no, it's not sin to drink Diet Coke. It could be for somebody. Well, yeah, but Diet Coke has aspartame, and that's really bad for you, so you shouldn't drink it because it's going to ruin your body, and that doesn't honor God. And then someone else could be like, well, yeah, but the study they did on aspartame actually says blah, 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 you know, whatever. And then there's this argument about whether Diet Coke is good for you or bad for you. And it's like, it's not, the point isn't to get into that argument. The point is, the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not drink the Coke of diet. Like, it, we're not told stuff like that. So it's a gray area. And it's, you know, you operate on your Christian liberty and your convictions on some of these things. But ultimately, regardless of what it is, you have to pick up that can of soda and decide... Is this can of soda going to honor Jesus when I use it? Is this going to magnify my eternal hope in Christ? Now, it doesn't mean that every single interaction we have, we're stopping and having this big, you know, philosophical, doctrinal discussion with ourselves. Before I open this can of soda, I need to stand back for five minutes and discuss with myself the doctrine of eternal hope. Okay, and then, like, you would never make progress in life. <laughs> You'd be like, we'd be like, come on, man, we gotta go to the mall. I can't go to the mall yet. I have to pray about it for about a good 15 minutes before I go. I'm not telling you not to pray about going to the mall, but my point is that instead of taking the time 
to actively sit there and contemplate every interaction in this world, what we're told is by being in the Word constantly, our mind is automatically informed. So we are instantly making discernments and decisions and, and, just, and judgments in a moment based on all the information we have and that process happens in our brain really fast because we're incredible creatures that God made and we can think insanely fast and we can make a decision about this can of soda in an instant based on a conviction, based on our knowledge of the word. And two years later, your decision about that soda might change because your convictions might change and you grew. Maybe you went from, I'll never drink that too, I can drink that. Or I went from, I'll drink that too, I can never drink that. Whether you do or don't is irrelevant. The point is, is this can of soda a means by which you glorify your eternal hope in Christ? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you decide to train your physical body, that decision and the subsequent practices that follow it are to be filtered through your sanctification and your desire to honor and revere God. So if you're going to work out, do it to the glory of God. If you're going to drink that can of soda, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Or whatever you do. Right? So eating or drinking or whatever, meaning everything and anything should be done for the glory of God. So really, the ultimate measure of everything and anything you do every day, every second of your life, constantly, you can ask yourself this question every moment of your life and it's never the wrong thing to say to yourself. Never wrong. Does this glorify God? Simple. Simple question. Does this glorify God? I think there's depth to that that should be explored. But if we're just going to make, if I'm just going to give you a nice little easy fundamental tactic to employ in your life as you interact with this world, if you decide, am I going to go to the gym today? Well, does it glorify God? This person may say it does. That person may say it doesn't. It does now? It doesn't today. It will tomorrow, but not right now. You know, if I'm like, no, I think God wants me to go to the gym and work out. My wife's like, spend time with me. And I'm like, no, no, I'm going to the gym. Right? She's going to be like, oh, you're not loving me well. And now something that was good has suddenly become bad. And so you're constantly shifting and evaluating and changing the way we interact with all these things in our life so that they glorify God. So that our, everything is filtered through our faith in our eternal hope in Christ. So, we can cheer for our favorite team in sin, or we can cheer for our favorite team in righteousness, and it all depends on your intentions and your attitude and your heart. You can go to the gym, you can drink the, the, the diet soda, either in sin or in righteousness. It all depends on how you're interacting with it. And we can move the things in our life around on the spectrum based on the condition of our heart.
And this spectrum is important. The real challenge in life is navigating all the things that are in between the extremes on the spectrum of reverence to God. Okay? I'll give you two examples, and they're extreme examples, to help you understand this idea of a spectrum. If you are singing satanic songs of Satan worship while you intentionally worshiped Satan, we, that would be on the far end of the spectrum that we would call evil. That would be truly worthless and irreverent to God. But to sing songs of worship to God with your heart set on his glory, that would be on the other end of the spectrum. And so those examples are really extreme, and it's easy for us to all agree that one's bad and one's good. One's reverent and one's irreverent. But where does country music fall on that spectrum? For me, I think country music is way near the evil end because I don't like it. But <laughs> I'm just teasing. What about rap music? What about rock music? Where does this particular song or that particular song fall on the spectrum of reverence to God? Well, most secular music certainly isn't going to be reverent to God. So it's going to be further on the other end, further away from reverence to God. And then you've got Christian songs that, you know, you could evaluate each Christian song, which one's more or less reverent. And the point isn't to sit there and make sure the spectrum makes sense to you and, and every, everything and you involve yourself with in life finds its place in the spectrum. The point is... The spectrum is determined by our heart. So the real challenge is not determining what's clearly, uh, what's clearly good and what's clearly evil. Those are clear. It doesn't take a lot to discover what's what. The real challenge is navigating all the things between those extremes. Because life is messy and confusing and difficult and gray and nuanced and challenging where does cheering for your favorite football team fall on the spectrum of reverence? Like I said, it depends on the condition of your heart. How nice is your home? What kind of books do you like to read? And how many books do you read? And how do you dress? Those are a few examples of things that we can take, put on the spectrum, the way that I dress myself. I'm going to put on the spectrum, I can dress myself in a way that honors God and is reverent to God or not. Now, I, and when I think about my clothes, now I've got to consider modesty from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Mod, if, especially if you're a woman, I've got to consider modesty in the way I dress. Is, is this shirt more or less modest, and therefore is it more or less glorifying to God? And, you know, where does it fall on the spectrum? Two people could be dressed exactly the same and have that, those outfits on different places on the spectrum based on their convictions or based on their attitude, their heart, their disposition. One person could walk in with a humble heart and mind being like, I'm just trying to dress nice because I'm, I'm at church this morning and I just, you know, just kind of putting on my Sunday best. It doesn't mean anything. I just want to look nice. So it's just a small way to honor God with a decision. You know, someone else could walk in like, Man, I look good. <laughs> and it's like, well, that's way more sinful than the other person because of the way they're interacting with that outfit. And yet it could be the same outfit. And so they'd land on different areas of the spectrum. So 
You can cheer for your favorite team, either in sin or in righteousness. You can wear that outfit, either in sin or in righteousness. It's all about your intentions, your attitude, and your heart. And we can move things in life around on the spectrum based on the condition of our hearts when we engage with them. Like I said, Diet Coke, you drink that Diet Coke, it could be sin today, not sin tomorrow. I don't know. It depends. And so what does all that mean? This is why we must always keep our hearts in check. Always keep our hearts in check. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Your version might say, guard your heart with all vigilance, because that's what it means. Guard your heart by keeping a close watch on your heart, because the condition of your heart will determine how godly and reverent your interactions are with the things of this world. So Paul's encouragement and command to us is that we train ourselves in godliness. And by doing so, all the things that we do in life will get filtered through godliness, which is the practice of understanding and implementing the truths of Scripture into our lives. Meaning, we can still enjoy the good things of this world in a way that is not sinful. And Paul was like warming us up to this truth back in verse 4 when, when he taught that everything God created is meant to be used for good. And everything that God created that is good is meant to be used for good and meant to be appreciated and we're to give thanks to him for it. And that's, as, that's our expression to him of thankfulness and that's his expression to us of his grace and his goodness. And that's us recognizing his grace and his goodness. And the only way we can evaluate what is good or how to evaluate what to avoid or what we are to engage with, we must be trained in godliness. And in order to be trained in godliness, we must be in the word and this is why paul says in verse 10 so verse 10 is ultimately why i've been saying this whole time that our whole point is to filter everything we interact with in this world through the lens or through the filter of our eternal hope in christ because look what paul says in verse 10 for to this end so there's an end there's an end there's a goal what's the goal well, whatever it is, we toil and strive for it. So to this end, whatever it is, we toil and strive. And what's the end? We have our hope set on a living God who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. So our hope is set, fixed, immovable. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our hope is set. And so for that hope... In our living God, our eternal hope in Christ, we toil and strive. That's the goal. We're toiling and striving in this life. And the toil and the striving is working out every moment of every day what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's godly, what's not godly, what's righteous, what's not righteous, what's sin, what's, what's good, what's not sin. How do I interact with this thing? What do I say to this person when they say this thing to me? What doctrinal truth from the Bible do I know that's going to inform me and in how I lead this person? I had a conversation, not a conversation, an email yesterday from a friend. He was a pastor. He got removed from the church that he was in. He wrote a letter to that church, and he said to that, in this letter, he sent it to me and said, I want to know your thoughts about this letter before I send it to the entire church to basically tell the whole church that the elders of that church are evil men who you need to deal with. And I was, had this dilemma. I'm like, it might be okay to send that letter. It might be okay. 
Because if he's feeling convicted and there is value, biblical godliness to standing up for truth and taking a stand against evil people in situations. We have examples of that in scriptures. And then we also have examples and commands to shut our mouths, step back, and suffer silently. Taking the loss to reveal the likeness of Christ who also suffered silently taking the loss on the cross for our good. So I told him that. I said, dude, this is good? Or this, you know, these are, here's another option. Do nothing. Let God sovereignly work it out. Trust his plan that you're not there to fix it now. I said, or you feel convicted and you do it. So I ended up telling him, I'm like, let me explain to you the other option that's on the table that you're not considering. Now that I've explained it to you, go ahead and make your own decision. Pray about it and trust the spirit on how he convicts you. And I just thought about this scenario. Like, that's exactly what we're dealing with in this text. It's like, which one's the right decision to make? They're both technically good, but one of them could be not good in this scenario. And one of them could be evil or sin in this scenario. One of them could be righteous. Or they're both righteous. I don't know. I'm not in his head and in his heart. So it's, it's, it's messy. It's difficult. It's challenging. It's gray. It's not, it's not explicitly clarified in Scripture what he should do. So we have to gather biblical doctrinal principles and kind of mash them together and kind of, you know, create a response that we believe is biblical. And here's the reality, guys. You're going to do that in life, and you're going to make the wrong choice sometimes. And you're going to sin. Right? And obviously sin's not okay, but that's part of the growth process, is learning from your mistakes, right? I mean, like, everyone was taught that as a kid. Right? That's why erasers exist, because people make mistakes. Learn from your mistakes. Right? If you make a mistake, don't do it again. Okay? But we're Christians. I mean, we're sinners. <laughs> and, and we make the same mistake more than once like it happens and i'm not glorifying or saying it's okay but by god's grace we can take that thing and go you know i've learned from the sin i did in this thing last time last time i went this way and went this route and it, i don't think it was good and now i have the opportunity to learn from it and make a better decision this time like i, I picked last time i had that diet coke and i drank it and my stomach hurt for days i've learned my lesson don't drink the diet coke you know so, like, there are, it's important that we understand that Paul is essentially setting before us the hope of Christ and saying, we work really hard to navigate the gray areas of life to get to that hope. And though our minds and our hearts and our eyes are set on that hope, don't lose sight of how important the toil and the striving is, because that's part of of the journey that is required. And that part of the journey will reveal where your hope is really set. And just to clarify what might not be clear, because there's a little statement in this verse 10 that maybe just needs a little clarity. Paul is not saying that all people are saved. He says, God is the savior of all people, especially those who believe. Paul is not saying that all people are saved. He is revealing that God is the only savior that people can have. He's the savior of all people. Meaning the world offers no other savior. But his salvation is especially meaningful and applicable to those who already know him as savior. That's why he says especially to those who believe. But what Paul is telling us really here in verse 10 is why we must filter everything through godliness. 
Because godliness is set on the eternal hope of God's promise that we are his and will enjoy him forever. So to enjoy anything in this life without it being skimmed through with the truth that does not, that, that does not fit or make sense with our eternal hope. How can you say you have hope and an eternal promise of God while you live your life in a way that reveals that your hope is set on temporal things in this world? How can you say your hope is set on God while you worship your physical body and put all your efforts into shaping your body when, you, when the shaping of your body should be the product of your most vital desire, which is to shape your soul into Christ-likeness? How can you say God is your hope when you yell and swear at the TV when your team loses a football game? So now you're interacting with a football game in a sinful way instead of using it as an opportunity to grow in godliness. And trust me, sometimes our favorite teams, which I'm sure you know, really test our godliness. It really does because we live in a culture where sports is an idol. Even to Christians. So clearly, if those things are happening, our hope is not set eternally on God's promise. So Paul's teaching us in verse 10, that because our hope is set in God's promise of eternal benefit, that our toil and effort should strive toward interacting with the human experience in a way that exalts godliness and thus exalts Christ and honors and glorifies God. Anything less is simply irreverent and ultimately silly and mythological in essence when compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us in Christ. If Christ is truly our ultimate hope and we believe that he is as valuable as he says he is, then this life is just a practice of making everything about him and to him and through him and for him. That is really the point that, Paul's, that we can really land on. That's really where Paul's going with all this. If Christ is your eternal hope, then everything should be about him. Everything should be for him. Everything should be to him. Everything should be through him. It should be all about Christ. How does this glorify God? Does this glorify God? Does this magnify Christ? Does this honor my Lord? Is this obedient to God? Those are simple questions to ask yourself in any scenario. And we should be asking it all the time. And we shouldn't even have to take time to sit back and go, hmm, I wonder, is this obedient? Is this honoring to God. We know whether it is or isn't instantly most of the time. But we need to consciously make ourselves aware of that kind of question so that everything we do in this life, every interaction we have, everything we pick up, everything we jump into, everything we put our hands on, every time we talk, all the thoughts that come into our mind, everything we decide to entertain, all the things that we watch and see and hear, and get involved in all of it should be, does this honor Jesus? Because my life is made to be for him and through him and to him and because of him and for his glory. And how we interact with the world is going to depend on where our heart and mind is at. And where our heart and mind is at is going to be dependent on what we know from scripture, which means we need to be in the word. So that everything is about him and to him and through him and for him. As Romans 11.36 says, For from Christ, for from him and through him and to 
him are all, all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We just trust your word and in any, way, in, in any way that we lack trust in your word, we pray that you would secure for us more trust in your word and then bring us to your word so we can know your truth and that truth will inform our mind and change our hearts. So transform our hearts into the heart and mind of Jesus so that we can now interact with and operate in the world in a way that magnifies you, Lord. That magnifies you, Father. That exalts your Son, Jesus. That brings you glory. And that satisfies our heart and mind. Help us to see the entire world almost like a matrix. Where instead of seeing what everyone else sees, all we see are like code for opportunities to interact with something for your glory. We can't do that on our own. We're desperate, desperate for you. And we need your help. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.